Part 2, Chapter 13, Part 2 of The Job. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Job by Sinclair Lewis. Part 2, The Office. Chapter 13, Part 2. The boarders from the two farmhouses organized a tremendous picnic on Bald Knob, with sandwiches and chicken salad and cake and thermos bottles of coffee and a whole pail of beans and a phonograph with seven records, with recitations and pastoral merriment and Kodaks snapping every two or three minutes, with groups sitting about on blankets and once in a while someone explaining why the scenery was so scenic. Una had been anxious lest Mr. Schwartz pay her two marked attentions, make them as conspicuous as Mr. Starr and Miss Vincent, for in the morning he had hung about, waiting for a game of croquet with her. But Mr. Schwartz was equally pleasant to her, to Miss Vincent, and to Mrs. Cannon, and he was attractively ardent regarding the scenery. "'This certainly beats New York, eh? Especially you being here.' he said to her aside. They sang ballads about the fire at dusk, and trailed home along dark paths that smelled of pungent leaf-mold. Mr. Schwartz lumbered beside her, heaped with blankets and pails and baskets, till he resembled a camel in a caravan, and encouraged her to tell how stupid and unenterprising Mr. Troy Wilkins was. When they reached the farmhouse, the young moon and the great evening star were low in a wash of turquoise above misty meadows. Frogs sang. Una promised herself a long and unworried sleep, and the night tingled with an indefinable magic. She was absolutely, immaculately happy, for the first time since she had been ordered to take Walter Babson's dictation. Mr. Schwartz was generous. He invited all the boarders to a hayride picnic at Hawkins Pond, followed by a barn dance. He took Una and the cannons for a motor ride, and insisted on buying, not giving, but buying, dinner for them at the Lester Hampton Inn. When the debutante Una bounced and said she did wish she had some candy, he trudged down to the village and bought for her a two-pound box of exciting chocolates, and when she longed to know how to play tennis, he rented balls and two rackets, tried to remember what he had learned in two or three games of ten years before, and gave her elaborate explanations. Lest the farmhouse experts, Mr. Cannon was said by Mrs. Cannon to be one of the very best players at the Winnetka Country Club, see them, Una and Mr. Schwartz sneaked out before breakfast. Their tennis costumes consisted of new canvas shoes. They galloped through the dew and swatted at balls ferociously, two happy dubs who proudly used all the tennis terms they knew. Mr. Schwartz was always there when she wanted him, but he never intruded, he never was urgent. She kept him away for a week. But in their second week, Mr. and Mrs. Cannon, Mr. Starr, Miss Vincent, and the pleasant couple from Gloversville all went away, and Una and Mr. Schwartz became the elder generation, 
the seniors of the boarders. They rather looked down upon the new boarders who came in, tender feet, people who didn't know about Bald Knob or the Glade or Hawkins Pond, people who weren't half so witty or comfy as the giants of those golden, olden days when Mr. Cannon had ruled. Una and Mr. Schwartz deigned to accompany them on picnics, even grew interested in their new conceptions of the presidential campaign and croquet and food, yet held rather aloof, as became the ancien regime, took confidential walks together, and in secret laughed enormously when the green generation gossiped about them as though they were interested in each other, as Mr. Starr and Miss Vincent had been in the far-forgotten time. Una blushed a little when she discovered that everyone thought they were engaged, but she laughed at the rumor, and she laughed again, a nervous young laugh, as she repeated it to Mr. Schwartz. "'Isn't it a shame the way people gossip? Silly billies,' she said. "'We never talk that way about Mr. Starr and Miss Vincent, though in their case we would have been justified.' "'Yes, bet they were engaged.' "'Oh, say, did I tell you about the first day I came here, "'and Star took me aside and says he—' "'In their hour-long talks, Mr. Schwartz had not told much about himself, "'though of his business he had talked often. "'But on an afternoon, when they took a book and a lunch "'and tramped off to a round-topped grassy hill, "'he finally confided in her, "'and her mild interest in him as an amiable companion— deepen to sympathy. The book was The People of the Abyss by Jack London, which Mamie Magan had given to Una as an introduction to a knowledge of social conditions. Una had planned to absorb it, to learn how the shockingly poor live. Now she read the first four pages to Mr. Schwartz. After each page he said that he was interested. At the end of the fourth page, when Una stopped for breath, he commented, "'Fine writer, that fella, London. And they say he's quite a fella. Been a sailor and a miner and all kinds of things. Very intimate friend of mine knows him quite well. Met him in Frisco. And he says he's been a sailor and all kinds of things. But he's a socialist. Tell you, I ain't got much time for these socialists.' "'Course I'm kind of a socialist myself, lots of ways, "'but these here fellows that go around making folks discontented, agitators. "'Don't suppose it's that way with this London. "'He must be pretty well fixed, "'and so, of course, he's probably growing conservative and sensible. "'But most of these socialists are just a lazy bunch of bums "'that try and see how much trouble they can stir up. "'They think that just because they're too lazy to find an opening,' that they got the right to take the money away from the fellows that hustle around and make good. Trouble with all these socialist guys is that they don't stop to realize that you can't change human nature. They want to take away all the rewards for initiative and enterprise, just as Sam Cannon was saying. Do you suppose I'd work my head off putting a proposition through if there wasn't anything in it for me? Then another thing, about all this submerged tenth, these people of the abyss, and all the rest. I don't feel a darn bit sorry for them. They stick in London or New York or wherever they are, 
and live on charity, and if you offered em a good job they wouldn't take it. Why, look here. All through the Middle West the farmers are just looking for men at three dollars a day, and for hired girls they'd give hired girls three and four dollars a week in a good home. But do all these people go out and get the jobs? Not a bit of it. They'd rather stay home and yelp about socialism and anarchism and Lord knows what all. Another thing, I never could figure out what all these socialists and IWWs, these I-won't-works, would do if we did divide up and hand all the industries over to them. I bet they'd be the very first ones to kick for a return to the old conditions. I tell you, it surprises me when a good, bright man like Jack London, or this fella Upton Sinclair, they say he's a well-educated fella, too, don't stop and realize these things. But, said Una, then she stopped. Her entire knowledge of socialism was comprised in the fact that Mamie Magan believed in it and that Walter Babson alternated between socialism, anarchism, and a desire to own a large house in Westchester and write poetry and be superior to the illiterate mass. So, to the economic spokesman for the great American businessman, her answer was, But... Then look here, said Mr. Schwartz, take yourself. Suppose you like to work eight hours a day? Of course you don't. Neither do I. I always thought I'd like to be a gentleman farmer and take it easy. But the good Lord saw fit to stick us into these jobs. That's all we know about it. And we do our work and don't howl about it like all these socialists and radicals and other wind-jammers that know more than the Constitution and Congress and a convention of Philadelphia lawyers put together. You don't want to work as hard as you do, and then have to divide up every Saturday with some lazy bum of a socialist that's too lazy to support himself. Yes, or to take a bath, now do you? Well, no, Una admitted, in face of this triumphant exposure of liberal fallacies. The book slipped into her lap. How wonderful that line of big woolly clouds is there between the two mountains, she said. I just like to fly through them. I am tired. The clouds rest me so. Of course you're tired, little sister. You just forget about all those guys in the abyss. Tell you a person on the job's got enough to do looking out for himself. Well, said Una. Suddenly she lay back, her hands behind her head, her fingers outstretched among the long, cool grasses. A hum of insects surrounded her. The grasses towering above her eyes were a forest. She turned her head to watch a ladybug industriously ascend one side of a blade of grass, and with equal enterprise immediately descend the other side. With the office always in her mind as material for metaphors, Una compared the ladybug's method to Troy Wilkins's habit of having his correspondence filed and immediately calling for it again. She turned her face to the sky. 
she was uplifted by the bold contrast of cumulus clouds and the radiant blue sky. Here she could give herself up to rest. She was so secure now, with the affable Mr. Schwartz to guard her against outsiders, more secure and satisfied, she reflected, than she could ever have been with Walter Babson. A hawk soared above her, a perfect thing of sun-brightened grace. The grasses smelled warm and pleasant, and under her beat the happy heart of the summer land. "'I'm a poor old roughneck,' said Mr. Schwartz. "'But today, up here with you, I feel so darn good that I almost think I'm a decent citizen. Honest, little sister, I haven't felt so bully for a blue moon.' "'Yes, and I,' she said. He smoked while she almost drowsed into slumber to the lullaby of the afternoon. When a blackbird chased a crow above her, and she sat up to watch the aerial privateering, Mr. Schwartz began to talk. He spoke of the flight of the Wright brothers in France and Virginia, which were just then, in the summer of 1908, arousing the world to a belief in aviation. He had as positive information regarding aeroplanes as he had regarding socialism. It seemed that a man who was tremendously on the inside of aviation, who was, in fact, going to use whole tons of aeroplane varnish on aeroplane bodies next month or next season, had given Mr. Schwartz secret advices that within five years, by 1913, aeroplanes would be crossing the Atlantic daily, and conveying passengers and mail on regular routes between New York and Chicago. Though, said Mr. Schwartz in a sophisticated way, I don't agree with these crazy enthusiasts that believe aeroplanes will be used in war. Too easy to shoot them down. His information was so sound that he had bought a hundred shares of stock in his customer's company, in on the ground floor. Stock at three dollars a share. Would be worth two hundred a share the minute they started regular passenger carrying. But at that I only took a hundred shares. I don't believe in all this stock gambling. What I want is sound, conservative investments said Mr. Schwartz. "'Yes, I should think you'd be awfully practical,' mused Una. "'My! Three dollars to two hundred! You'll make an awful lot out of it.' "'Well, now, I'm not saying anything. I don't pretend to be a Weisenheimer. Maybe nine or ten years, 1917 or 1918, before we are doing a regular business.' and at that the shares may never go above par. But still, I guess I'm middlin' practical. Not like these socialists, ha <laughs> How did you ever get your commercial training? The question encouraged him to tell the story of his life. Mostly it was a story of dates and towns and jobs, jobs he had held and jobs from which he had resigned, and all the crushing things he had said to the wicked bosses during those victorious resignings. 
clerk in a general store, in a clothing store, in a hardware store, all these in Ohio, a quite excusable, almost laudable failure in his own hardware store in a tiny Wisconsin town, half a dozen clerkships, collector for a harvester company in Nebraska, going from farm to farm by buggy, traveling salesman for a St. Paul wholesaler, for a Chicago clothing house, married, partner with his brother-in-law in a drug, paint, and stationery store, traveling for a Boston paint house, for the Lowry Paint Company of Jersey City, now with the Automobile Wax Company. A typical American business career, he remarked, though somehow distinctive, different, a guiding star. Una listened murmuringly, and he was encouraged to try to express the inner life behind his jobs. Hesitatingly, he sought to make vivid his small-boy life in the hills of West Virginia, carving initials, mowing lawns, smoking corn silk, being arrested on Halloween, his father's death, a certain Irving who was his friend, carrying a paper route during two years of high school, his determination to make something of himself, his arrival in Columbus, Ohio, with just seventy-eight cents, he emphasized it, just seventy-eight cents, that's every red cent I had when I started out to look for a job, and I didn't know a single guy in town. His reading of books during the evenings of his first years in Ohio, he didn't remember their titles exactly, he said, but he was sure that he read a lot of them. At last he spoke of his wife, of their buggy riding, of their neat frame house with the lawn and the porch swing, of their quarrels. He made it clear that his wife had been finicky and had fool notions, but he praised her for having come around and learned that a man is a man, and sometimes he means a lot better than it looks like. Probably he loves her a lot better than a lot of these plush-souled, soft-tongued fellas that give him a lot of guff and lovey-dovey stuff and don't shell out the cash. She was a good sport, one of the best. Of the death of their baby boy. He was the brightest little kid. Everybody loved him. When I came home tired at night, he would grab my finger, see, this first finger, and hold it, and want me to show him the bunny book. And then he died. Mr. Schwartz told it simply, looking at clouds spread on the blue sky like a thrown handful of white paint. Una had hated the word widower. It had suggested Henry Carson and the Panama undertaker and funerals and tired men trying to wash children and looking for a new wife to take over that work. All the smell and grease of disordered side street kitchens. To her, now, Julius Edward Schwartz was not a flabby-necked widower, but a man who mourned, who felt as despairingly as could Walter Babson the loss of the baby who had crowed over the bunny book. She, the motherless, almost loved him 
as she stood with him in the same depth of human grief, and she cried a little, secretly, and thought of her longing for the dead mother, as he gently went on. My wife died a year later. I couldn't get over it. Seemed like I could have killed myself when I thought of any mean thing I might have said to her, not meaning anything, but hasty-like, as a man will. Couldn't seem to get over it. Evenings were just hell. They were so... empty. Even when I was out on the road, there wasn't anybody to write to, anybody that cared. Just sit in a hotel room and think about her. And I just couldn't realize that she was gone. Do you know, Miss Golden, for months, whenever I was coming back to Boston from a trip, it was her I was coming back to, seemed like, even though I knew she wasn't there. Yes, and evenings at home when I'd be sitting there reading, I'd think I heard her step, and I'd look up and smile, and she wouldn't be there. She would never be there again. She was a lot like you, same cute, bright sort of a little woman, with light hair, Yes, even the same eyeglasses. I think maybe that's why I noticed you particular when I first met you at that lunch and remembered you so well afterward. Though you're really a lot brighter and better educated than what she was, I can see it now. I don't mean no disrespect to her. She was a good sport. They don't make em any better or finer or truer. But she hadn't never had much chance— she wasn't educated or a live wire like you are. You don't mind my saying that, do you? How you mean to me what she meant? No, I'm glad, she whispered. Unlike the nimble Walter Babson, Mr. Schwartz did not make the revelation of his tragedy an excuse for trying to stir her to passion. But he had taken and he held her hand among the long grasses, and she permitted it. That was all. He did not arouse her. Still was it Walter's dark head, and the head of Walter's baby that she wanted to cradle on her breast. But for Mr. Schwartz she felt a good will that was broad as the summer afternoon. I am very glad you told me. I do understand. I lost my mother just a year ago, she said softly. He squeezed her hand and sighed. Thank you, little sister. Then he rose and more briskly announced, Getting late. Better be hiking, I guess. Not again did he even touch her hand, but on his last night at the farmhouse he begged, May I come to call on you in New York? And she said, Yes, please do. She stayed for a day after his departure, a long and lonely Sunday. She walked five miles by herself. She thought of the momently more horrible fact that vacation was over, that the office would engulf her again. She declared to herself that two weeks were just long enough holiday to rest her, to free her from the office not long enough to begin to find positive joy. Between shutters before the swiftly approaching office, she thought of Mr. Schwartz. She still called him that to herself, 
She couldn't fit Eddie to his trim bulkiness, his maturity. She decided that he was wrong about socialism. She feebly tried to see wherein, and determined to consult her teacher in ideals, Mamie Magan, regarding the proper answers to him. She was sure that he was rather crude in manners and speech, rather boastful, somewhat loquacious. "'But I do like him,' she cried to the hillsides and the free sky. "'He would take care of me. He's kind, and he would learn. We'll go to concerts and things like that in New York. Dear me, I guess I don't know any too much about art things myself.' I don't know why, but even if he isn't interesting like Mamie Magan, I like him, I think. On the train back to New York, early Monday morning, she felt so fresh and fit, with morning vigorous in her and about her, that she relished the thought of attacking the job. Why, she rejoiced, every fiber of her was simply soaked with holiday. She was so much stronger and happier. New York and the business world simply couldn't be the same old routine, because she herself was different. But the train became hot and dusty. The Italians began to take off their collars and hand-painted ties. And hot and dusty, perspiring and dizzily rushing, were the streets of New York when she ventured from the Grand Central Station out into them once more. It was late. She went to the office at once. She tried to push away her feeling that the Berkshires, where she had arisen to a cool green dawn just that morning, were leagues and years away. Tired she was, but sunburnt and easy-breathing. She exploded into the office, set down her suitcase, found herself glad to shake Mr. Wilkins's hand, and to answer his cordial, "'Well, well, you're brown as a berry. Have a good time?' "'The office was different,' she cried, cried to that other earlier self who had sat in a train and hoped that the office would be different. She kissed Bessie Craker, and, by an error of enthusiasm, nearly kissed the office boy, and told them about the farmhouse, the view from her room, the glade, bald knob, Hawkins Pond, about chickens and fresh milk and pigeons aflutter. She showed them the Kodak pictures taken by Mrs. Cannon, and indicated Mr. Starr and Miss Vincent, and laughed about them till— "'Oh, Miss Golden, could you take a little dictation now?' Mr. Wilkins called. There was also a pile of correspondence unfiled, and the office supplies were low, and Bessie was behind with her copying, and the office boy had let the place get as dusty as a hayloft, and the stiff old gray floor rag was grimly at its post in the washroom. The office isn't changed, she said, and when she went out at three for belated lunch, she added, and New York isn't either. Oh, Lord, I really am back here. Same old hot streets. Don't believe there are any Berkshires. 
just seems now as though I hadn't been away at all. She sat in negligee on the roof of the home club, and learned that Rose Larson and Mamie Magan and a dozen others had just gone on vacation. "'Lord, it's over for me,' she thought. Fifty more weeks of the job before I can get away again. A whole year. Vacation is farther from me now than ever. And the same old grind. Let's see, I've got to get in touch with the Adine Company for Mr. Wilkins before I even do any filing in the morning. She awoke, after midnight, and worried. I mustn't forget to get after the Adine Company the very first thing in the morning. And Mr. Wilkins has got to get Bessie and me a wastebasket apiece. Oh, Lord, I wish Eddie Schwartz were going to take me out for a walk tomorrow, the old darling that he is. I'd walk anywhere rather than ask Mr. Wilkins for those blame wastebaskets. End of chapter 13